0: Welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie, and we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today we have your hometown crime. Woohoo! Ooh. Woohoo! Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays <laughs> yes. and Happy Crime. That's right, but exactly. not really Happy Crime. No, but you know we can appreciate that awful and fascinating things happen. We have to deal with it all. Exactly, so we might as well deal with it with a smile on our face. That's and right. It's a laugh or cry situation. We're going to choose laughter, and you know what? Sometimes we can do
1: both. That's right. My son does that both at the same time, laughing, the and, laughing crying. and crying. Literally, like a sad cry and yet a very exuberant laughter. Usually at the end of Monopoly. But oh, oh, <laughs> I feel that. The not the Monopoly part, the laughing and crying part. I've been there. It's so funny because they'll be on such a high, and then all of a sudden the face contorts and he's crying, but then he's laughing because he's crying. And then he's crying because he's laughing. And it's a really whole cycle that's absolutely delightful. Oh, plus the good news is that it's not like a deep problem. It's not like a thing that hits really deep for him. It's still like very hysterical to watch. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Guilty pleasures. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So today you sent in hometown crimes. We have hometown crime for you. This is our little end of the year bow on your holiday plans. So if you've got things going on that you need to escape for a little bit, we hope that we can help you out with that. And we have not only your hometown crimes, but we have our own hometown crimes prepared as well. So we have not heard those. We don't know what the other one's going to talk about. So it's very exciting. It's a very exciting day right here. Let me tell you. It's a storytelling day. <laughs> it is a storytelling day. Yay. Yay. And we actually do read every message that you send us. Absolutely. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook, killer fun podcast exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment you can find us on twitter at killer fun pod or you can send me an email killerfunpodcast at gmail.com we really do read everything that everybody sends us so send it in you know just because we're doing this today doesn't mean that we won't do it again in the future so if you have a good one go ahead and send it in We'd love to hear about it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Send in that and also send in your requests. Every once in a while, we get requests for a show or something, a book, mm-hmm. um, and those are great. So I love hearing what people are fascinated with. So send in your suggestions because we really do read them all. We file them away. It might not happen right away, but it will likely happen well, eventually. Yeah. Well, in our last episode
0: about the following, that was a listener request. So, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All right, so are we ready to get into this?
1: I'm so ready because I've been kind of pre reading a few of these, uh-huh. you know? And yeah, yeah. Um, well, some of them are really gruesome. Uh-huh. Gruesome, but there's just something magnetic about reading <sighs> these stories. And I feel like a terrible individual. No, 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 don't. But you know what? Join me. Yeah, yeah.
0: When we hear about the worst of humanity, we have the opportunity to mentally prepare for it. And that's part of it. That is part part of of the draw of the true crime, which this is the true crime day. When we do these hometowns, this is our legit just getting into the
1: real. Yeah. You know, but you're right. Art often just prepares our minds. Think about the fairy tales. I mean, we kind of sanitized them over time, but they used to be. Pretty gruesome, uh-huh. but they, they don't necessarily teach kids or adults to be afraid because there are monsters. What they do is they teach them that the monsters can be killed. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes we see the awful things happen here, but so often what we see is in humanity rising up and showing how we're going to prevent it or how we're going to Get justice for it. And so it does. It prepares our hearts and our minds a little bit for for what's out there. Yeah. But you know what? Trigger warning. Because we're (laughs) gonna talk some real stuff today. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: But it's good. It's good. (laughs) So all right. So Josh, one of the hosts over at Predictocast sent in this one in my hometown while I was in high school, there was a series of murders of elderly people that police tried to tie together as a serial killing. There was even a 48 hour special done on it. Five elderly people were killed in the small Mississippi town of Columbus between 1996 and 1998. Four of them were strangled. David Murray was linked by DNA in 2017. Long time to the murder of one of the five retired farmer mac fowler evidently the two men knew one another and had entered into a physical confrontation at fowler's home authorities are not convinced that david murray had anything to do with the other murders one is solved but that doesn't rule out a serial killer for the other four bad luck or bad intent no one knows for sure Yikes. Yikes. Oh,
1: elder murder. I know. know, uh, That's That's like right up there with child murder. It really is awful. Yeah. Yeah, something about that just makes you so mad. I mean, all of it makes you mad. I mean, anybody getting murdered makes you mad. But there's something particularly uh, tender about the elderly. And, you know, I'm like, you you know what? Let them get the touchdown. They're at the one yard line, man. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Like, just Just, let him go. It's almost, let him run out the clock. Exactly. It's almost there. (sighs) All right, what have you got? Okay, this is from Christina, and she talks about the house next door from where she grew up. Apparently, it had a history. Back a bit before we moved there, she says, in 1979-ish, the husband murdered his wife and mother-in-law, hacked them up. He was found covered in blood in the neighbor's shed after. What? My grandpa was on the jury for the trial and had to come and tour the crime scene. (gasps) It was reported to be very gruesome. Oh. That's all I know, though. Wow. You would think, like,
0: a relation to a neighbor might put you too close to be on the jury. I know
1: this is like Dexter didn't learn his rules. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And when she says this and I'm thinking the shed, all I can picture is like this oh. man and his like goggles on his head and the, you know, the apron and covered with blood. And yeah, uh, I bet,
0: I bet it was uh, less sophisticated than that.
1: <laughs> I think it was
0: likely less
1: sophisticated. I think it's a dude cowering in or behind a shed. I think so. I think he was on the run. But you know what? Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about with that Dexter thing, you have an opportunity to re-listen to our episode of Dexter come in the new year. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. So that was a, that was a really good one. Thanks, Christina. Yeah, Yeah. All right. Oh,
0: this is one I overheard. I was talking to somebody and they didn't really like, they're not like a listener, but it was such an Interesting story that I went on found an article about it. <laughs> <laughs> Christy super sleuth strikes again. That's right. So Clay Robinson was a respected and beloved physician's assistant. He was home with his wife and two of their six children on October 10th of 2017. He woke to find an intruder in his home and the two men exchanged gunfire after Robinson bellowed for the man to leave. The intruder, Jonathan Perales, was high on Xanax and having already made two trips to the car with items from the home before the altercation, he then fled. He'd been cruising the neighborhood looking for homes to burgle and found the Robinson Gate and their back door unlocked. So he was scared, high, and injured from the exchange of bullets. Perales got lost in the neighborhood. Incidentally... I lived in this neighborhood when I was a kid, and you can absolutely get lost in this neighborhood. Yikes. I know exactly where all of this went down. And the neighborhood can be really confusing, particularly if you're high, and particularly if you're unfamiliar with it. It can be pretty easy to not be able to find your way out. He ended up in a neighbor's home claiming that it was in self-defense, that he'd only shot at the guy after he'd been shot at. No matter the fact that uh, you know, he had broken into somebody else's house. So he was writhing in pain. They called EMS. On October eleventh of twenty eighteen, just almost exactly a year later after the incident occurred, Jonathan Perales was found guilty of capital murder for shooting Clay Robinson and was sentenced to life in prison.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that was for them. Awful, but I have to give him a little credit for trying to be smart about going to the neighbors and then telling him that he's been shot and, you know, it, wow. I mean, it almost worked. Yeah, well, ish. Ish. I mean, a year, you know, went <laughs> yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, interesting. So sad. But he took a couple of trips to the car, and
0: that's a big no-no. Yeah. What? So the lesson we learned from that is. Don't get high on Xanax and lock your doors. Absolutely. We learn
1: from both sides of we that equation. We learn from both sides. Yeah. All right. What you got? Well, this is from Athena. Um, this is the Heidi Seaman case. Ooh. Um, and she says, it struck us all close to home. I know someone, she says, that lived on the same street as Heidi and who was asked to comment on the news. When her body was eventually found, it was tragic. As long as Heidi's body was not found, her parents could believe she was just kidnapped and might come home. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, I can see that. As a parent now, totally empathize with it. Totally empathize. And you know, it's weird because there's There's a piece on both sides of it. There's a hope that they might find her alive, but then when it's all over, there's sort of a piece that at least you know, yeah, you know, and i don't I wonder when that switches for a parent, you know, like how long I don't even know I hope neither I hope I never I know, know. but um as I recall, she says the parents got divorced uh Heidi seaman. It was just 11 in 1990 when she went missing, um, walking home from a friend's house but never arrived. Thousands of volunteers searched over 1,200 square miles for over three weeks before the girl's body was found in Wimberley, some 60 miles from her home. This is one of the Texas Rangers' top 12 cold cases. Cold cases. Uh And both the Texas Rangers and the San Antonio Police Department continue to investigate. It's not solved. I know. Isn't that scary? It's so awful. And
0: I mean, we were, I was just a little bit older than her. And I remember when she went missing, I remember my parents, I walked a friend home one day, I mean, she literally lived a block away, and we weren't really done visiting, but she had to go home. Mm-hmm. So I walked her home and then walked back. Well, I didn't tell my parents before I left. Ooh. I was only gone 20 minutes, but it was right around this time, and my parents flipped out. I can imagine. Yeah.
1: It's scary. Yeah. I mean, we didn't. Have, she didn't have 360 on her phone. No, she didn't have a phone. They didn't have a phone. Kind of reminds me of the jungle. No, Jumanji. It oh, reminds okay. me of Jumanji because, you know, in the new one, you know, and okay. they're in the world. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Well, there's you this one telling little scene. telling me I need to watch it and Come I haven't watched it. Watch that. it. It's so good. All right. This scene does not spoil anything. Okay. But there's somebody in the game that's been there from like whenever way back. Okay. Yeah. Then these new characters arrive. So the one girl who is played by Jack Black, um, keeps going, I miss my phone. I miss my phone. <laughs> and the character that's been in the game for a while finally turns around and goes, does phone mean something different in the future? <laughs> she straight up looks at him and was like, yes. <laughs> just got that's awesome. Buddy. Um, but yeah, it's just hard. You can't track. I mean, I think that's why we as parents now, we, we want to like I chip wanna... our kids. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to know where you are all the time. You can't turn off location services mm-hmm. on your phone for
1: messages or whatever. You know, it's a good time to mention there are some really cool apps out there. Oh yeah, uh, let me give a shout out. Just a shout okay. out. Do you to have a favorite Noonlight. one? Oh, it's called Noonlight. Okay. All right, so Noonlight is an app you download, and it's basically you trigger the mechanism by holding the button. Okay. So you open the app, and then you start. the the app, and you hold the button as long as you're walking from where you are to where you're going. Okay. If you let go of the button and then you don't respond, they text you, and if you don't respond quickly, they call and they get the location where you are. Wow. And there's all kinds of services involved with that, like other options, you know, other types of things that you can do in the app that keeps you safe. So at church the other day, somebody was using my phone to film and they accidentally opened the app and touched Oops. the button. Well, then he let go. And so I got a text quickly. And so I had to stop it and say, no, 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 everything's Okay. How awesome is that? Yeah. And now this is the free version, okay? Wow. The next day, I got another text from them saying, we saw that you had an incident yesterday. It turned out everything was okay. I'm just following up to make sure everything (gasps) actually was okay. So they went as far as to kind of follow up and make sure that maybe it wasn't me changing my mind in a situation, if you get my drift. Right. You know, like maybe, you know, I had done it and then been talked out of it. And yeah. so they
0: were following up or like, you know, you had responded to something because you'd been kidnapped or whatever. And then they wanted to check and make sure you were really okay. Then really day. okay. That's
1: awesome. Really cool. So especially for, um, anybody who's going to be walking out at night somewhere yeah. or in an odd place. Yeah. Really cool. So That's shout out to Noonlight. Very cool. Very Cool. Mm-hmm. And that's the free version. That's the free version. When wow. she checked in the next day, I was like, "That's awesome!" Now I'm quite sure it's likely an automated bot. The point is, they thought about it.
0: Well, yeah, somebody they thought to set that up. They, well, and you know that somebody is at least checking through that stuff, even if it's a bot mm-hmm. that's doing it. Somebody's going through and checking on it to see whether they need to alert authorities. Right. Exactly. Wow. it's really good. It's That's really cool. cool. So yeah, check it out. Very cool. All right. So this one is from Jared of the forge audio network. Uh, he's a podcaster over at high hungry. I'm dad and the mundane and the arcane. I don't live in Vidor, but this was about 30 miles away from me and they still have signs up today. V in Texas. Kathy Page appeared at first glance to have been involved in a tragic car accident, but the vehicle found in a ditch near her home had very little damage. This, combined with the suspicious evidence inside the vehicle, i.e. drinks in the cup holders weren't even spilled, led police to investigate further. Kathy and her husband of 13 years were in the process of splitting up, but the two seemed on friendly terms. Kathy had asked Steve, her husband, to watch their two young daughters while she went to meet a friend in a nearby town late in the evening of May 13th, 1991. By 4.15 a.m. on May 14th, Kathy was dead and in the car in the ditch. An autopsy showed that her nose was broken. She had been strangled. Her skin and underwear had bloodstains, but her outer clothing did not. They found that she'd had sex that evening Kathy had not gone to meet a girlfriend, as Steve had reported, but had gone to meet a lover who readily admitted to having had intimate relationships with Kathy that evening. The weird thing was, the semen found in the autopsy could not have been from Kathy's boyfriend because he had not had a vasectomy. Who had? Steve. Interesting. (laughs) Sadly, the semen samples without sperm didn't have enough DNA to test with the technical limitations at the time, and they were never able to secure enough evidence to arrest Steve for the murder of his wife. But the family did win a civil wrongful death suit against Steve
1: Page. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That always really interests me when the was- criminal court can't convict, but then they win in the civil case, and it's... it's. It's kind of like, well, then do you get to go back to court and then, like, use that as evidence? I don't... Know. <laughs> yeah. Like, how can he be, like, convicted of her wrongful death if he wasn't
0: involved? I don't know. I guess there's different levels of evidence that you have to be able to provide. I guess so. I mean, criminal intent, I guess, it plays a role, but... You can still go to jail even if you didn't intend to kill somebody. I mean... If you kill somebody, you can still end up in jail for it. You can. I don't know. It's just
1: baffling to me how that, that well, works. Well, that's
0: kind of how that happened with O.J. Simpson. Exactly. Like, he got off for having uh, killed Nicole, but then still lost in a civil suit with her family. I, I don't understand that at all. I don't understand it either. And we're firmly in the idea that he did kill her, right? Oh, yeah.
1: We're <laughs> firmly in that okay. idea.
0: Good. Just making sure you and I are on the same page when it comes to OJ Simpson, because, you know, that's a qualification for being friends. (laughs) Yes, of course.
1: Of course. That is that is a deal breaker. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. My mother. Wait, wait. Let me use the right terminology. Taped. Okay. Every second of that trial. (laughs) No wonder you're interested in crime. Oh, yeah. It was on all the time. I mean, taped it somewhere. Somewhere there are VCR tapes, right? Like <laughs> VHS, uh huh, um, that have the entire OJ Simpson wow. trial on it.
0: I bet it'd be fascinating to go back and watch again. Or fully boring, one or the other.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe an edited version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> might be fascinating. <laughs> um, you All know right. that movie they made though was pretty good
0: about it. Oh, the yeah, the movie or the show. Was it the American Crime Story show? There oh, was the, there was like a whole like mini series. Oh, maybe a
1: mini series. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking it was about. So good. The one where Ross played what's yes. his face? Okay,
0: <laughs> yes, oh, David Ross, David Schwimmer. David Schwimmer.
1: <laughs> he did a really good job. Was, I did not see Ross in him at all, but you know he will always be Ross to well, me. Well, of course, but you know. yes, yeah,
0: yes. That's, that's the one. that's the one. Yeah, it was okay. a mini series. It was good. It was they do a different like crime every season that they okay. do that show. And they, that particular season was all O.J. Simpson, and it was excellent, riveting.
1: Really well done. Yeah. All right, what you got? Okay, this is from Sherry, host of the podcast Your Podcast or Mine, and Just Push Play, a music podcast.
0: Yeah, I was on your podcaster mine. So talking about podcasting. So if you want to hear that, check it out. I'll do a link to it. It was, it was really fun. She's great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome.
1: Um, so she says the hog trail murders, which was uh, Daniel Conahan Jr. of Florida convicted killer of one conclusively attached to eight, possibly linked to more than a dozen. Wow. Oh, Hey, it's Florida, man, Florida, man. <laughs> I add it again. Daniel's homosexuality was evident in high school, and his parents were displeased. They sent him to a psychiatrist for treatment. Surprise, surprise, that didn't work. He joined the Navy, but he was nearly court-martialed for homosexual solicitation and then discharged for a large fight caused in some way by his homosexual behavior. He lived in Chicago for many years before returning to Florida to care for his elderly parents and became a licensed practical nurse. Between 1994 and 1996, the mutilated bodies of five men Mm. who would be later identified and were all homosexual were discovered in the same general area. Mm. So in May of 1996, several witnesses identified Daniel in connection with the bodies and one man, Stanley Burden, who had escaped after being propositioned, tied to a tree and bore the scars Mm. of nearly being strangled to death. Wow. Escaped after that. Wow. Daniel waived his right to a trial by jury. Okay. um, And a judge heard the case in 1999. So he was found guilty and was sentenced to death, but remains on death row in Florida. (gasps) Several more bodies of skeletal remains were found in the area where the 1994 to 96 bodies were found, just a mile from where Stanley was kidnapped and escaped. Wow. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Wow.
0: Wow.
1: Oh, so let's. Uh, what do we learn
0: from this? We learn that uh, don't damage your children because they're gay. Thank you. That would be the first lesson. That's 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 one of many that we can learn from this particular case.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I'm not saying that because he was homosexual and that they tried to send him to treatment <laughs> that that turned him into a killer. No, no, no. He may... yeah. But, but but he may, maybe he wouldn't have ended up quite that far. Right, maybe he could have gotten the help for whatever diagnosis he had. Yeah. If, if he, they weren't spending time trying to treat a non-diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right? Because we they go. were very focused on homosexuality, yeah. Yeah. And the, not whatever else aww. is going on there. Because they probably I my guess from this day and age and this time frame, I bet his parents saw a lot of his behavior uh-huh. and attributed it to the homosexuality. Right. Inaccurately.
0: Yeah. He may, they may have uh, wanted to examine for uh, psychosis in some way and not just saying yeah. that all of the psychosis came from being homosexual.
1: Right. Like the antisocial behavior that's obvious here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. not a result of homosexuality. Mm-mm. So, no. yeah, that's lesson number one. Yeah. Wow, though five men. You can see though, my guess would be, because not only were they all homosexual, which would make them easier targets because that would be the group he's in. Right. Right. Not because they're homosexual, but because he is homosexual, those are the people he's going to be associated with. Well, and also
0: if they're like him in the mid nineties, perhaps estranged from their family, less contact with people who are going to be checking in on
1: them all the time. Mm -hmm. So it could have been a matter of easier target, but I'm going to guess by the mutilated bodies of these men that this had to do with his own hatred of his own sexuality. Oh, yeah. And that it was- Well, because his parents told him he should hate it. So if he had a a diagnosis of some sort of antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy and all of that, then he blamed it on the homosexuality rather than on a diagnosis that could have received treatment maybe. Aww. I'm taking some wild guesses. Wild liberties I'm, there. Yeah, wild liberties. But you know, it kind of gets your mind thinking yeah. abstractly about about those kind of things. Yeah. Well, and about how damaging that can be. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But Stanley Burden, holy crap. Yeah, I'm glad you got away, dude. Man, well done. Well, I'm glad that they uh, have this closed. Yes. At least. Well, some closure and
0: you know, now that they know that he's At least behind bars. Well, he's behind bars that here's a person that they know was active in that area. So if somebody has a loved one missing, they know, okay, maybe we need to go and look in this particular place. We need to see if we can match up dental records or whatever,
1: and then at least be able to get some closure. Exactly. And it doesn't seem like uh, Mr. Daniel is giving away any of this information. No. so
0: closed up. All right, we have one more that we're going to talk about. And this is from a friend of the pod who wishes to remain anonymous. Okay, you'll see why. Okay, I have a true crime story for you. But I prefer if you did not name the names because it's not super fun. My sister had a bunch of hell her whole life. And in September of 2010, the ultimate bad stuff happened. An ex had been stalking her without her really knowing it. He bought a weapon, drove to a different state, broke into her house at night, shot her boyfriend slash baby daddy in the face while she was in the bed next to him pregnant. The boyfriend died on impact and the other guy did get caught. He was prosecuted and jailed. Being woken up late at night to a sniveling mess and not understanding exactly what is happening because you can't understand what she is saying, late night calls are the worst. She was in PTSD mode for months and then with meds, counseling, and support is finally in a space to deal. But fireworks and stuff still set her off. She went to most of the court sessions and confronted him.
1: Well done. I know. Good way for her. to fight it.
0: Yeah. Way to fight it. Way to be brave. Get counseling. I mean, when you have a traumatic event like that, I cannot stress enough how important it is to just go ahead and get the help. Immediately. There's no, there's no shame in that. There's nothing shameful about asking for somebody to help you deal with your trauma. I mean, it's nice to have friends who can help support you, but you really need... A professional who can help you with this stuff?
1: You can. And, you know, I'll say something about PTSD, particularly that might put some people at ease, maybe embolden yep. them to go. Because here's the thing PTSD develops after acute stress. Okay. Okay. So when you have a traumatic event, you have an acute stress. Well, that acute stress doesn't mean you're going to have PTSD. But if you don't treat the acute stress, if you don't go and seek the treatment, then you might develop PTSD. Okay. So here's the thing. You don't have PTSD because you had a traumatic event right away. PTSD happens when you don't deal with the stress post the traumatic event. Okay. Okay. So not everybody has PTSD. So don't take that stigma on just because you have to go and, and seek counseling. Now, my preference would be that there would be no stigma at all for anyone going. But if that's something you personally deal with, like a fear, because I think we all kind of do, because even though we probably wouldn't put shame on somebody else for having PTSD, we still, we still tend to put shame on ourselves. Yeah. That's just us. That's people. We have expectations of ourselves. Um, and so, and I get that. So, um, But just know that if that's something you deal with, which is very common, don't just put that label on yourself. Go seek treatment for having acute stress following a traumatic event. And it's preventative. That is a preventative treatment Uh, So that you might be able to process the stress and be able to come out and not experience PTSD. PTSD. That's awesome. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to be a changed individual. It doesn't mean you're not going to have things about you that are still going to be different or that uh, trigger for that word trigger, it doesn't necessarily mean you have PTSD just because some memories are triggered by certain stimuluses. Okay. Yeah. Fireworks um, or, or whatever. Yeah. Stimuli. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just know that you can go seek treatment for this. It's important because following a traumatic event, your, your brain is going to emblazon that memory really fast and really hard. Um, you're not going to want to sleep a whole whole lot. And that's bad. You need to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> You need to sleep. Unfortunately, also sleeping helps memory. So it's kind of attached touch 22. But if you don't sleep, if you're deprived of sleep, like is so common, especially if you're going through grief after some, some, some sort of t- traumatic event, um, that is a high risk. It's a predictor of PTSD. Okay. Okay. So okay. when people tell you to rest, you know, if you've ever experienced something like you've lost a family member, and that's traumatic in its own way, not not the same sort of trauma as right. this, but nevertheless traumatic to lose somebody and everybody's like go rest, go rest, and you think they're insane. They're not insane. Go rest. You need to rest. This is how your mind is going to start to process all of this and you'll be at a better place to get through.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's what dreams are, right? Is helping your Brain deal with the memories.
1: Yeah, your you know, the dreams are somewhat associated with that, but really it's that deep sleep, that slow yeah. wave sleep they call it. Um, okay. It's the deep sleep that's where memory consolidation happens and you know, pruning. Your literally your synapses begin to rearrange and get rid of things that are inefficient and. Put it all from short-term memory to long-term memory. It's amazing, you know. Your brain does all of this stuff, and then the REM sleep—that's where you're you're dreaming the most. You can dream other times, but that's where the dreaming is like really active. Your brain is so active in that time. And there's, you know, there's definitely thought to be some processing going on there, and and all of that stuff going on. But that's also other, um, other functions for your brain oh, too. Cool. You know, all kinds of stuff going on in there. So, so amazing. Um, you know, but just in general, like thirty thousand foot view the whole, sleep. yes please get sleep it's so so important figure out how to sleep Mm -hmm. yeah yeah all
0: right well that's all of our listener stories that were sent in thank you so so much for sending those in and again if you have one that you want to share please do send it in we would love 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 to hear from you and we're going to take a real quick break and then we'll be back with our own hometown Stories. Oh, I'm nervous. N- oh, you're nervous? <laughs> I'm nervous. Well, let's take a break. Okay. Man? <laughs> I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, b-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. (laughs) Join us every other week, anywhere you get your podcasts and happy purple listening friends. We're back. Thanks so much for sticking with us through that quick break. And now we have our hometown crime for you. So Jackie, you said you wanted to go first.
1: I do want to go first um, because I'm nervous. I need to get this (laughs) over with. with? I got to get it over with. Go for it. Oh my goodness. Okay. Here's the deal. This is actually something that is not personal to me in that it didn't happen to a family member. Okay. But it happened to our community. Okay. It was a big, big deal. Okay. Huge. Like it changed the entire character
0: of my high school.
1: So you were around for this. Oh yeah, I was around for this. So you you weren't like directly involved, but it affected your life. Correct. So I was in middle school. Okay. Well, in eighth grade, really. I mean, about to be in high school. And so in, in Georgia, in Lilburn, Georgia, um, Parkview High School and Trickham Middle School were right next to each other. Okay. Okay. And so you knew everything about both the schools. And you know, when you're in eighth grade, you already know a lot about your high school that you're going to, you know? Yeah. Um, and we had a kicking football team, of course. Um, and they were coached by, um, Chuck Mize. And his son, Chip Mize, was a local community like karate instructor and worked at the community center in Tucker and really well-liked. Um, in fact, I have a, my best friend, one of my best friends in high school, but um, he took karate from him. Um, wow. Yeah. It was really awesome right up until the time that uh, Chip Mize killed his father and tried to <gasps> kill his mother in what? the middle of the night. Oh my gosh. It was horrific. So oh. there are two different types of reports. The original reporting, um, back in '93 was that Chip had entered the home in the middle of the night and came upstairs with a, with a knife and an axe at some point and had axed through a bathroom door. And basically they always said that he killed his father with the axe. More recent reports indicate that he actually killed his dad with the knife, Mm. the same knife he stabbed his mom 17 times with (gasps) 17 Um, times. And she survived and she survived. Um, but that he had gotten the ax to break down the bathroom window to come after her. So there is some little bit of a conflicting. So the reports from Judy are that he came after her with the ax and that's what he, that's where the ax came from. But original reports like the AP report, because this was national news, um, Said that the father had fled to the bathroom and that he had axed down the door and killed him. Judy says that he had run into the hallway and was knifed. And then she turned on the lights and saw all the blood <gasps> and was like, I can't do anything for you. And so it ran to lock herself in the bathroom. Basically, the mom calmed the son down and had him call 911. She had her son call 911? And Chip stayed there until 911 got there and then he was arrested.
0: That was always an odd little detail. What kind of psychosis is happening there? There has to be something, right? So
1: Chip was known for being a really fun, kind of um, charming, outgoing guy. Um, There really wasn't anything in his past that was gruesome. But the speculation was that um, he didn't do well in school. And he had racked up a bunch of lies to his parents. His parents, well, this was like the 90s. Uh You go to college. And so he had basically failed out of Georgia state and then lied to his parents all the way through to a graduation date that he (gasps) lied about. And then his dad took him to get a car. They bought him a Jeep because the dealership was having like this sale for newly graduated students. And, um, that's when everything was about to unravel because they had to have his degree, a copy of his degree certificate so that, you know, they could, but they went ahead and let them take the car. But then he kept stalling. Oh, well, that hasn't come in the mail. I'll have to follow up with the school. Oh, I think it got lost in the mail. Oh, yeah, it came, but now it's getting framed. This is all stuff that Judy ended up saying later on um, in the story um, that's posted from the AJC, Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, so it was about to unravel. There was just a lot of lies. Um, So Chuck Mize was beloved in this town. Um, He was beloved at Parkview. Um, And we were in class. And in the morning, they had to announce to everybody what had happened. Wow. I mean, the entire class, the entire school, both schools right next to each other. It was just the most heavy fog just fell over everything. I mean, for a middle school student, it was like... This this happens. And I don't know him, but like 800 people that I know know him. Wow. You know, like I've known Chuck Mize. Like Coach Mize is like a legend over there, you know, and Bobby takes karate lessons from Chip. And- right. What, so what did they say? Did they say he'd been like stabbed to death by his son, or did they just say mm-hmm. he was? They gave us a very clinical reading, you really? know. Really? Yeah. Coach, I guess- Coach Mize was murdered. By his son, and what? Right. they were very they clinical. Said that? Well, you know why? Because they were being very um, upfront so oh, that they... they could get people to counseling. They didn't want rumor mills. I think that's yeah. what it really was. So, yeah, they had counselors available for, I mean, it felt like months. I don't know how long it was. But what's really interesting is I was kind of looking up the details again, uh-huh. you know, and I, I came across a few things that were kind of super interesting. First, my experience of hearing that and Grieving with my friends, you know, literally helping one of my friends walk through this process of, I thought he was a good man. This is somebody I looked up to. Yeah. This is somebody who like the informed son. my faith, yeah. right? Like the son. Yeah. yeah. The son who is the murderer and right. people having to go reevaluate everything about their lives and who they listen to, Aww. right? It was really kind of jarring. So I was reading and on Wednesday, June 3rd, 2015, a student from the area who is now a grown adult like the rest of us, um, had written a blog, and she was saying some thoughts, things I haven't talked about in a while. And she says, I have no idea what brings me to this thought whatsoever, but at this current time, I am engrossed with it. Chip Mize. The man that stole my childhood, not for the reasons you think. There was no rape or incest or molestation involved. I didn't really even know the man personally. I had a relatively happy childhood, but I say he stole my childhood because he rocked what it meant to be a child. I was 12 when he committed the unspeakable act, and he was 23. Wow. I mean, the watching her go through all this process, and I'm like, oh my gosh, all of us went through that same process. And so, okay. Okay. It's funny because I always get made fun of from my husband because our high school, like my high school experience was like not normal. Okay. Well, it started off with the teacher getting murdered. Right. Which was, you know, horrific. Yeah. It, it was not normal. I know that people were marginalized. I know that there was cliques. I know there was like popular people and geeks, but it was so like mild. Okay. Right. Um, I never saw like outright ugly and whenever I did I mean, I would say, you know, the popular people, those were the folks who were like, I don't want to tolerate that. Really? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I mean, it was kind of weird. <laughs> I didn't know it was weird. Well, no, it was normal I, for you. It was normal for us. And I just remember, I know some people really do hear me and go, whatever. And I know their experience wasn't that great. But for like thousands of students. It was pretty chill. It was pretty awesome. Like I would say the most popular girl in school, she is still to this day an absolute delight. There's there's nobody who wouldn't love her. She is a just a light of God. Like she's just so kind and Aww. always was. Like that's, always was. That's so nice when um, like the popular person is actually like a really decent human being. She deserves to be popular. Aww. Right. And she carried it well. Like she 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 wore that with a, a grace and an elegance. Um, and not just her, but many people who were popular. But like in a way, like I was not cool yeah. at all. That was not my prime. Awkward, right? But I was a pretty good dancer and singer. And so as I got into like my junior and senior year, especially, I started to kind of come out of my shell with that a little bit. And I remember um, doing a talent show, and I had I had sung a song and then I had actually danced. And I remember that like people came up to me and were like, Noticing and they talked to me in the hallway after, you know, in the days following and, you know, and I remember that. And it wasn't until many years later, I realized that that was probably pretty odd because by any stretch, like that person shouldn't talk to me. Huh. Right. Like as I got with other people in the world and realized that's weird. (laughs) Like, you know, and I was like, I'm, I am so blessed to have that. But then I always remember it's because we all went through this traumatic event. Yeah. It somehow put a reality check on all of us, you know. Well,
0: it forced you to grow up in a way that most thirteen to eighteen mm-hmm. year olds don't have to do until they're maybe an adult. adult. Even. Yeah,
1: yeah. It was just crazy. so much.
0: I say, I say it so much less now as an adult, but I really think that maybe that's a product of my own unusual experience. Mm. Because I think I look at some parts of San Antonio where you know, wealth and clicks and things happen. And it's very much like middle school and high school. And I just am not a part of that. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe it still really happens. And I just don't quite realize it because those are not the circles in which I'm right running
1: well and i mean the biodome of high school you know there's not much you sort of miss You know, you you do get an opportunity if your eyes are open. Yeah. You can really observe a lot. Right. But I just didn't have anything to compare it to except TV. And I just assumed it was just so much worse on TV because it was TV. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't realize that actually that art was more closely related to reality than my experience was. Wow. Um, Cecil Flo was the assistant coach and he took over and he retired just, you know, several years ago. And he was amazing. He took our football team to, you know... All the way. Uh-huh. Um, oh, by the way, shout out to Parkview. They're about to go all the way. Oh, Come good on, for them. Panthers. Okay, um, their theme is unity right now. Oh, it's awesome. Nice. Um, anyways, they're f- freaking fantastic. Um, but Judy Mize is doing well. Um, you good. know, she remarried. Okay. Um, and they moved out of town. Chip had a sister. They had a, a daughter, and and Judy, you know sort of stayed with her, and and they, they got through it. Um, it was just a horrible thing. So what's interesting about that detail of of him calling 911, so this is how Judy says, and and this is her words in a story released in the AJC um, back in 03, 10 years okay. after the event. I thought it was a stranger, but Chuck woke up and immediately knew it was Chip. He jumped up and started yelling, Wake up, Chip, you're having a nightmare, you're having a nightmare. Chuck Mize left to his wife's defense and tried to calm his son, but Chip Mize turned the blade on his father. So Chip had come in and actually attacked Judy first, and that's when Chuck woke up. But Chuck Mize turned the blade on his father. The two wrestled in the dark from the bedroom to a hallway and into the bathroom, leaving a bloody trail. Judy Mize said she initially didn't know her son was stabbing her husband. She saw shadows and heard her son making karate yells. Then she heard her husband say, oh my God, Chip, you don't know what you're doing. Call 911. That's when Judy Myers turned on the lights. Quote, there was so much blood, I couldn't stand it, she said. Chuck was still standing, but I knew there was nothing I could do for him. End quote. She flipped the lights off and darted to a small back room of the bathroom. Quote, I heard Chuck fall. Then there was silence. Mom, I think I killed dad, Chip said. <gasps> so Judy endured the attack with the axe at the door. Um... Finally, she knew she had to make a run for it, so she opened the door and ran, and then he came at her with a knife, and she said, I, you don't need to kill me with an axe, you know, I'm already bleeding, just let me sit here and bleed to death, she says. You don't need to stab me anymore, she quotes. (gasps) He paused, but then kept stabbing her as she tried to run. She was cut on the back arms and on the top of her head. Quote, he was like a wild animal when it was happening, Judy my said. The two ran through the bedroom and into the foyer, and she said, he tried to cut my thumb off, but the worst part was my face. He stabbed me from my lip down to my throat and then all the way around my throat and my neck. Um, Judy had grabbed a towel, the article says, and was holding it to her neck, and she credits that with saving her life. She says... This quote is hard. Mm -hmm. I think whatever rage he was in, when I got calm in my voice, that calmed him down, and he sort of came to. So this is what had happened. She convinced him by begging her son to call 911 in an attempt to save her husband's life. Initially, she was screaming, but then she used a calm voice. Wow. So she says that that's what made him come to, and then he called 911. Wow.
0: Wow. What, what did I read? Our job as parents is not to share in their
1: panic, but to give them peace. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's just weird now. Okay. So all of that, who knows what motivated him, but sad is that Coach thought he was having a nightmare. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's, that's it, just so sad. Well, doesn't that tell you how out of character it was for that's him? That's how out of character it was. The only blessing is that Coach died thinking that it was just a nightmare, a nightmare, and likely not thinking that it was something worse. And so maybe that's some sort of piece. I don't know. But it really, like, I want to know, like, what happened with that? Why? But here's what's weird there's this really, really no-name book. It's like a self-published book. And it's called After Midnight in Savannah. Ooh. Kind of a rip on the, as they call it in Savannah, the book. This is the murder of Alva Martin. Okay. Maiden name Alva Mize. What? And that Mize family has quite a bit of a, a little bit of a history. What? This is, there's more murder in this family? Apparently. (gasps) Oh! From a different branch. So Alva Virginia Myers was born in 1916 in Atlanta, the last of six children. Um, she was named for a sa- famous person. Jim Martin is her son. She had married um, married a man, and she was a Nazarene pastor and had a church down in Savannah. Like They had moved to Savannah. Okay. That's where the, the kids were. Um, so Jim Martin is in jail for her murder. But he's writing this book with this author to tell his story because he okay. maintains his innocence and says that it was a, a guy that he was actually hooked up with. Now, he was there when it happened. He There's a lot of things he admits, okay. but he says it was actually Larry that strangled her, and he was the one who stopped it and then fought Larry. They had convicted him as if it was the other way around. Okay. So he maintains his innocence, but, you know. Um, so this is him telling his story, and in this book... um, So there's a lot of really cool, famous, but also infamous people. So while Johnny Mize and pro golfer Larry Mize make for an impressive pedigree on one side, Jim Martin points to a darker side of the family as well. There were Mize cousins who went out West. One of the men abused his wife and finally killed her, got away with it. We had some pictures of them from the 1890s and early 1900s, and they looked like outlaws. They made the James gang look like a bunch of Jesuit fathers. And also, there was Chuck Mize, the coach in Atlanta who was killed by his son a few years back. The boy also stabbed the mother about 17 times, but she lived. They're cousins, too.
0: Whoa. Double hometown murder. Whoa.
1: That's some cray-cray.
0: There, That's, I mean, that's so much for one
1: family. Alva was strangled and beaten. I'm, I'm so sorry, Alva. Uh, me, too. Wow.
0: So what happened to Chip?
1: Oh, Chip is uh, still in jail. Okay, uh, he denied parole, um, and he's still there. He okay, was, uh, given a life sentence and and whatnot. Um, you can look at him up. He's still on there because uh, he's a junior. So it's Charles Ross uh-huh. Mize Jr. RapSheet dot com. You can go see his little mugshot and see where he's at. Wow. He is still incarcerated. Wow. Well, I hope he's
0: getting help in prison because it sounds like there was.
1: something Something weird
0: well i mean it started with the lying surely that he was still in college when he wasn't yeah and that i mean i'm
1: sure that it can be difficult to figure out how to get out of that kind of lie it can well and earlier in the ajc article it talks about how um he had come home and said he had gotten a's and b's but then it came to light that it was an F and a D early on. Mm-hmm. And so then the next year he had actually failed out. And then that's when he started lying. And what's so interesting about this, it's like, but you you were found out once and the world didn't end. I mean, yeah. but I know that coach and his wife were pretty insistent on college. I mean, I get it. That was the time everybody was insistent on college, but... So, I mean, it was just a thing, you know, and there's a memorial, you know, a couple statues at Parkview and, oh, when we were seniors. You know how seniors do senior pranks? Is that yeah. a thing here? Yeah. Oh, one of our rival schools. They came and defamed... You know, you do stupid stuff. Well, they came in and they defamed his memorial. <gasps> oh, mm-mm. no. That was not a good decision because we had a lot of guys who owned uh, landscaping businesses. It was like a thing. Uh-huh. Everybody had a landscaping business. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, they they had all kinds of trucks and trailers and a lot of fertilizer. Oh, dear. A lot of them went over to that school. And let's just say their football field was pretty <laughs> the next year. <laughs> They said, This is what we think of what you just did. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) You know what? And that senior prank was uh, decriminalized. Uh, Cheers. Yep. Yep.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that awful, terrible story. I'm sorry that you had to go through it, but I'm glad that, you know, you had a relatively. Calm and accepting high school experience it because definitely of it.
1: changed us. I mean yeah. later on, we had a kid who was uh, diagnosed with cancer and fought cancer all the time and He was a baseball player and wanted to be on the team. And so he basically sat on the bench and was like a ball boy and water boy and helping out. But he couldn't play. And um, I remember the whole school just rallying behind this kid in a way that, I mean, we probably wouldn't have had we not gone through certain type of tragedy. That kid was just amazing. And you know what? His whole funeral plan, we knew he was going to pass. And he had planned it. And his funeral was on home plate on the field. And, like, the whole school came out. I'm not crying. You're crying. I'm not crying. You're crying. (laughs) It was so sweet. And, like, everybody was there. And the whole thing was, like, he's home. This is where he always wanted to be. And, like, oh, my gosh. But you know what? Could a school accept that kind of truth and that kind of, like, I don't know, elevated thinking about, like, life and how to go through the bases and come home with such grace and elegance and beauty? Like, could we have thought about that had we not? Experienced it, had the school district not handled it the way they did. Yeah. Coming right out and telling us and not shielding us or lying. I don't know. I think everybody played a a good role. Did a good job with it in the face of absolute tragedy and definitely changed us. So that's my story. Wow. Amazing.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Well, my story is a little older and far less personal connection good. I, I'm done now. I'm done now because you know, that mountain cedar is getting in my eyes now. Yeah. yeah we'll blame it on that. Mm-hmm. The tree pollen. All right. So tell me the story. I've been waiting to hear this story for like weeks. It's the horrible and fascinating story of the Texas baby killer. What? <laughs> She was not expecting baby killer.
1: <laughs> See, and I'm a terrible human being. No, I'm it's, laughing it's, no. so hard. It's shock.
0: <laughs> it's not like laughing at someone else's horror, it's shock because you yes. did not expect baby killer. I have kept this from Jackie very well. Yes, so. you
1: have. Laughter does have many motivations. <laughs> Okay, Texas baby yep. killer. Let's
0: yeah. go. So uh, first, I'd like to start off thinking Texas Monthly, Murderpedia, all that's interesting, and the podcast Vial, which I did not know about until after I had done all of my research for this, and then went and listened to it, and it was fantastic, put out by a local news station here in San Antonio. So that's where all this information comes from, and of course, we'll post links to stuff on social media. Janine Jones was one of four adopted children of Dick and Gladys Jones. She was close to her father and took after his abrupt and dominant personality. He had a lot of shady things going on. Some of them, you know, like just like get rich quick and some of them shady and some of them legitimate. In her teens, she suffered a series of tragedies of her four brothers two died one of whom whom she was particularly close with was building a pipe bomb i have no idea why and it exploded while he was building it killing him and another one died of cancer another of her brothers and then in january of 1968 janine's senior year of high school her father dick also died of cancer So just after high school graduation, Janine married James Delaney Jr. And in January of 1972, she gave birth to a son and then filed for divorce, citing her husband's temper and physical abuse. They reconciled and split up several times and had legal battles over child support. And in March of 1977, Janine gave birth to a daughter And at the time of the daughter's birth, Janine claimed that the father was a recently deceased man and then later said that her ex-husband was the father. So the deceased man that she said was the father of her daughter, he's not deceased at all. Oh. It was somebody she was engaged to for a time, and uh, they ended up not getting married, and it's fascinating. He's interviewed in Vile, and it was... Really, really interesting. They had been broken up far too long for him to be the father of her daughter. Oh, by the time her daughter was born, so so first of all, she lied and said he was dead, uh huh. But it really wasn't even him, anyways. It wasn't him, anyways. Oh, okay. So it was her ex husband, okay, yeah, who was actually the father of her child. So when her daughter was born, Janine was living with her mother and then. Com- Completed a one-year program to become a licensed vocational nurse. Uh, her grades were excellent, and she scored far, far above the required minimum on the licensing exam. After a couple of relatively short-term positions, she began working in the pediatric ICU at what was then known as Bear County Hospital at the end of October of 1978. And she remained there for 41 months. Most of the time on the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift, uh, Janine had an excellent understanding of anatomy and her skills, particularly starting an IV on a child, which is not easy, not easy at all, were very, very impressive. She was absur- assertive, abrasive, and foul mouthed with her colleagues, but patient and understanding nurse with the parents and became. Friends with some of the parents of long term patients in the ICU. In 1981, unexpected deaths began happening in the pediatric ICU where Janine worked. The first of these was Christopher Hodega, a little boy who'd been very ill with a heart defect and in the hospital for almost six months. He then went into cardiac arrest. Janine was particularly bereaved about this little boy's death. It was understandable because he'd been there for a long time. The death was unexpected given his condition. And it was the first in a series of 10 unexpected events in the latter half of 1981 and beginning of 1982 that resulted in the death of children. Those 10 cases are only those that the investigators were later able to find written documentation of in the records of peculiar circumstances. So there was a lot of unexpected events, but those 10 were where they could find written documentation to be able to start to understand what happened. Nurses and doctors working with Janine at the time recall many more unexpected events that were non-fatal during this time period. They were most commonly happened during Janine's shifts. It came to be known as the death shift three to 11 p.m. Despite this, they could not conclusively determine that Janine was at fault. She volunteered to work with the sickest patients and children don't typically end up in the PICU until they're quite ill. Roland Santos arrived in the PICU on December 27th, 1981. At just four weeks old, he had pneumonia. On December 30th, he began having inexplicable seizures and heart failure, but was rescued. The first week in January, Roland began bleeding from needle punctures that were old. Dr. Ken Copeland, an endocrinologist, became suspicious and ordered a screening for heparin blood thinner, and it came back positive. He ordered for a drug to be placed in the PICU that would counteract the effects of heparin, and sure enough, they were needed on January 10th. Dr. Copeland ordered the boy removed from the PICU, despite his severe condition. Four days later, Roland was well enough to go home. Whoa! (sighs) Uh Uh-huh. Because they could not prove that Janine Jones was the person responsible for the increase in child mortality in the PICU, they couldn't fire her without opening themselves up to a potential wrongful termination lawsuit. The lawyers felt that she might have a strong case without more conclusive evidence. So, in order to solve the problem, the hospital decided to upgrade their facility and only employ registered nurses in the pediatric intensive care unit. All of the licensed vocational nurses, including Janine, were offered positions in the hospital that did not involve working with children. Dr. Kathy Holland was doing her residency in pediatrics at the same time in the hospital. And while she'd heard the rumors about Janine, she'd worked with Janine on occasion and found that her technical expertise was excellent. Dr. Holland wanted to open her own practice in the Texas hill country town of Kerrville. As it was understaffed in pediatrics, it had been an aging community for a long time. And now that young families were returning to the area, there was a need. Despite warnings from colleagues not to hire Janine because of the rumors, Dr. Holland assumed that it was a conflict of strong personalities, as most of the evaluations that she'd received from the hospital for Janine were positive and more proof that it was just personality conflicts. The hospital basically gave Janine a glowing recommendation while they breathed a sigh of relief that she would no longer be
1: employed there. Dance of the lemons right there.
0: (sighs) Dr. Holland opened her practice in late August, 1982, and Janine was there to help open it. Unbeknownst to Dr. Holland, Janine had not renewed her nursing license that expired on August 2nd of that year. And she worked as an unlicensed nurse from August 23rd, 1982, when it opened until the... Texas Board of Vocational Nurse Examiners received her renewal fees on November 29th of that year. So several months she worked as an unlicensed nurse. Many parents were excited to have a young and up-to-date doctor in the area. They finally had a choice that didn't involve a long drive to one of the nearby metropolitan areas from Kerrville. So Austin, San Antonio are all pretty close. Particularly pleased were Petty and Reed McClellan, new parents to a daughter who was born four weeks premature, Chelsea Ann. Chelsea was about 14 months old when Dr. Holland's office opened and was the second patient. The active toddler was disruptive while Mrs. McClellan and Dr. Holland tried to talk about the child's complicated medical history. And Jean offered to take the baby to another area and play with her. Just five minutes later, Janine summoned Dr. Holland. Chelsea was in a medical crisis, not breathing, and in short order having seizures. They administered emergency treatment and summoned EMS. Chelsea spent nine days at the local hospital, but the events did not reoccur, and no explanation for the initial crisis was found. Uh the article I read in Texas Monthly only highlighted four more cases of children with medical emergencies just after the clinic opened, but I did see a Forensics Files episode that said EMS was summoned to the office seven times in the first month. Wow. That's not that's almost unheard of.
1: Yeah.
0: For just a regular pediatric practice? I mean, most clinics don't see that in years right on september 17th 1982 chelsea went to the doctor the circumstances surrounding that visit are different based on who you ask but the child was given two inoculations at that visit janine was had prepared the injections prior to the mcclellans entering the room chelsea stopped breathing And they called an ambulance. So she gave her the inoculations in her leg and while she was sitting on her mother's lap. And the child stopped breathing. Janine was in the ambulance with the baby. And they had to stop on their way to the hospital for Dr. Holland, who was following in her own car, because the ambulance made her motion sick. So she wouldn't be of much help. So she followed in her own car um, because Chelsea flatlined in the ambulance. Um, The child was declared dead shortly after arrival at the hospital. (sighs) Just three hours after Chelsea's death, a five-month-old with an anxious mother went to Dr. Holland because of crying spells. Janine insisted that they give him an IV just in case he had a seizure while they were running tests, despite the fact that the child had never had a seizure. Of course, he did then. The mother later described Janine as euphoric over the events. She was happy and excited and in her element with the child in crisis. On September 23rd, 1982, yet another five-month-old child had to be rushed to the ER in Kerrville. The small medical community in the area had noticed the sharp upturn of children who were not yet able to talk having emergencies. A group of doctors came to check on and observe this patient, and an anesthesiologist noticed the child's movements were exactly those of someone coming out from under a particular drug called succinylcholine. Sucks. Hmm. <laughs> oh, you're familiar with this? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. The executive committee of the hospital had a conference with Dr. Holland, but she was able to explain how each of the children's medical histories suggested that the emergency events were in the realm of possibility. They questioned if she had succinylcholine in her office, and she did, but had not had a need to use it. That weekend, Jeanine spoke to Dr. Holland and said she had informed the doctor of a missing bottle of succinylcholine several weeks ago and had ordered a replacement Not to worry, Janine had located the missing bottle, and it was full and in the refrigerator. Dr. Holland waited until Janine went to lunch the following Monday and examined the bottles. One was sealed, the other had two punctures in the top, though it appeared full. Later, the vials would be tested, and the one with the holes was 80% saline. Uh Uh-huh. That afternoon, Janine overdosed on an antidepressant doxepin and was admitted to the hospital. Dr. Holland consulted one of the doctors from the executive committee about succinylcholine bottle, and after reviewing the office records, a third bottle of the substance had been ordered. Dr. Holland had not ordered it, and they do not know what happened to it. The invoice in the records was unsigned. Dr. Holland fired Janine. Yeah, Yeah, about time. As you might imagine, it didn't go well, and the nurse wanted to take a polygraph and challenged the doctor to take one as well. Janine did take a polygraph and failed, but I don't know if Dr. Holland ever took one. The doctor was eventually cleared of all wrongdoing. Janine was not. Janine Jones was convicted of the murder of Chelsea McClellan in 1984 and sentenced to 99 years in prison. She also received a concurrent 60-year sentence for an injury to a child for giving Roland Santos an overdose of heparin in late 1981 and early 1982 when she worked at the PICU in San Antonio. A Texas law that was in effect from 1976 to 1986 that was designed to ease prison overcrowding that would have allowed Janine Jones to be released in March of 2018. In order to make sure that that didn't happen, she's been indicted on five additional counts of murder for children who died under her care at the time that she worked in the PICU in the early 1980s. Her hours were called the death shift, and she allegedly confessed to murdering many babies to a parole officer in 1998. The families, while some have had to wait decades to have their children's murderer brought to justice, are pleased overall with how the events are transpiring. If they had prosecuted her on these charges in the 1980s, they would fall under this mandatory release, and there wouldn't be a way to keep her away from the public at large. So her trial, a trial, is expected to start in February of 2020, and they're going to run these trials consecutively, They're not trying her for all five of them at once. Each child is getting their own trial. Nice. Yeah. So even if they are unable to convict her on one, they'll have another chance and another chance and another chance. And while she's waiting, because she's under indictment, she remains in prison.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm just shocked. Yeah. So I was like, "Why? okay, I I have thoughts. I'm glad you have thoughts because my brain just fell on the floor a minute ago. Well, I have no thoughts.
0: (laughs) Okay. So evidently, she went to the doctor a lot for herself and for her children, which makes sense. Like she's saying there's things wrong with them that weren't really wrong with them. So that might indicate that she's suffering from histrionic personality disorder. Yeah, you're nodding your head like that sounds right. So the symptoms are self-centeredness and feeling uncomfortable when not the center of attention. Inappropriately seductive appearance or behavior. She made lots and lots of crude jokes in the workplace, talked about sex a lot. She had rapidly shifting emotional states, excessive dramatics with exaggerated displays of emotion. She did that repeatedly when children died. In the PICU, she wanted to be the one to carry them down to the morgue. It was very Mm -hmm. unusual, strange stuff. So there's that. And then, of course, we think of Munchausen's by proxy.
1: That's the one that kind of pops in my mind first. Yes. In fact, I pulled it up because I was going to talk about that if you didn't, because that just sounds very much like oh, Well, it. yeah.
0: So I guess it's not actually called
1: Munchausen's? Fictitious disorder. Yes. Okay. Munchausen's is kind of like a common term. Yeah, it's just a... It,
0: yeah. It's a not a technical term, this fictitious disorder. That's what the DSM calls it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean... But yeah. it's what we understand Munchausen's to be, where mm-hmm. they cause a medical crisis in... Well, Munchausen's is causing a medical crisis in yourself. Uh, Munchausen's by proxy, which is actually fastitious disorder... Uh, by proxy. N- uh, they called it something else. Um, oh, fastitious disorder imposed on another. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. like the technical... Uh, what a clinician would use to talk about this. Right, that's And true. it's basically like... Hi, this is a liar, mm-hmm. and they're lying about medical stuff,
1: right? Yeah, um, you see it with, you know, moms and babies or well, I children. Remember,
0: I remember the first time I heard anything about that was uh, the Sixth Sense, when the right the little girl is haunting the little boy because her mother basically murdered her for because she kept her did sick this. for all that time. And this is not this is not like a really a disorder it's or, or uh because if it it is a disorder but it's not an excuse it's more of an explanation
1: well it, it is a mental illness it,
0: yes but it doesn't excuse the behavior well it like
1: excuses the behavior well,
0: sometimes people are unable to control their actions because of mental illness that's gone untreated. And therefore, they're found not to be responsible. Like, it's their fault, but they're not really responsible because they weren't able to legitimately do anything different. And I guess fictitious disorder is not treated that way.
1: No, you're right. They will be held responsible on some level. And, you know, there are different levels of responsibility, you know? I mean, if you're schizophrenic and then you sort of have a delusion that causes you to harm somebody, you're still going to be held responsible in some fashion, maybe not the same fashion if you weren't schizophrenic and you harmed somebody, right? So there's still a level of responsibility, but it is also still a mental illness um, that needs to be treated. Yeah. Interesting.
0: Interesting. I mean, it's just why. Well, first of all, I had no idea that Munchausen's wasn't really the term for it.
1: Well, it's just a common thing. I mean, it's just the way you commonly say it, you know. It and, seems
0: weird. To, and Munchausen's is like, well, it like, doesn't flow off the
1: tongue. Well, no, it's definitely not an easy name. But it's kind of like the way we call, like, instead of saying ALS, we say Lou Gehrig's. Oh, yeah. You know, it's kind of like one of those colloquial things. Okay. But yeah, I mean... I don't know how they would hold somebody responsible if they actually had a previous diagnosis of this or what, if they find out and diagnose it, but I assume they would take some responsibility. Um, Well, yeah, but but, also
0: you think that the hmm. hospital system, which has changed names and hands many times. Okay. All this stuff, reading about all this, I'm like, I never want to take my baby to the hospital. I never want to take my children to the hospital because, oh my gosh. And you know, this is not common, well,
1: this is not common. This is not common at all This um, is extremely unusual right. in fact, the rate of occurrence is kind of almost unknown like yeah. they 've taken some guesses it 's a low rate of occurrence, but they also don 't have a whole lot of really good numbers on it either yeah um, it's just uh, it 's strange like what causes a person and you know and then the question comes: does she have fictitious disorder? Or is she just a horrible human being? Maybe both. I mean, maybe both, right? But like they never diagnosed her, right? No. With that. And no. I mean, I feel like I cannot believe
0: that there was ever a law that would say that a murderer could get out early and have it be mandatory. No. So every no. day she had good behavior, she earned two additional days of sentence having been served. So that would have put her out 33 years after her initial beginning of her sentence. In what universe does that make sense? Somebody who has exhibited this kind of behavior who is legitimately a danger to society. Cause you know me, I'm all about helping people overcome their demons that Prison can be a place for them to rehabilitate rather than just incarcerate, right? And that if you know, I wish it were treated that way more. I'm sorry, they got her for one, and got her for almost getting another. Mm-hmm. She's that's two. Even if it's just two, that's shown that she has a pattern. A pattern, and then they knew that there were
1: many more. Yeah, and it brings up this idea that if she really was incarcerated in a system that did look at rehabilitation, there should be some more understanding of what her issues were. Yeah, right. We we really shouldn't be sitting here kind of supposing and guessing. We no. should really know by now. Yeah, you know. I mean, she could have fictitious. She could be kind of like a. Uh, You know, like hero homicide, not really even a diagnosed disorder sort of situation. She may not have ever meant to kill anybody, but she just wanted the hero to be able to come out and do her thing. Like what the article talked about in her element, she seemed really on point, yet she was also extremely broken when they died. It almost seems like she was causing situations not just to almost be the center of attention, but in order to be able to save and the man that she had pegged
0: as her daughter's father, who she said was dead but wasn't actually dead, he was interviewed for that vile podcast, and it was fascinating. And He said the same thing. He's like, I really don't think she ever meant to kill anybody. She wanted to put them into a medical crisis so that she could be the one to save them. And I'm like,
1: that fascinating. Is, yeah, that's I mean, like beyond awful. fictitious disorder. That's beyond, that's more like the histrionic. But, and worse. Layers uh, and of worse. things. Layers. Layers. Layers of things. Yeah. Wow. just Just uh, delusional. I mean, yeah. seriously, that's a delusion. It's not a logical thought, even.
0: All right. No. Wow. 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 What a wild ride. What a wild ride today. Baby killers. <laughs> Baby killers. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy
1: holidays. <laughs> you know, that's what I was listening to on the way here. Is I had to break out an old CD. Oh. And by CD, I mean, I went to Apple Music and pulled it up because oh, who knows where that CD is. Yeah. But I own the CD. Um, but in sync, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Y'all, bring it back. It is a stinking classic. Bring it back this year.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I, I just might because let me tell you why. I survived Whamageddon last year. Do you know what Whamageddon is? I'm sorry, no. Okay, so Whamageddon, you know, there's that awful song, Last Christmas by Wham. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's awful. And I hate it. (laughs) Hate's a very strong word, and I hate it. And I hate that they covered it like a million times. So there's this thing called Whamageddon, and you try you try not to hear the wham version of last christmas <laughs> between december 1st and december 25th and <laughs> last year i successfully survived wow i did li- i did it i did not listen to the christmas radio station well there you go so you control your playlist i control my but playlist when you go out i'm airpods there you go airpods a lot while I was doing shopping. Now, does it count if you walk by somebody who is singing it? As soon as you, no, 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 because it has to be the recorded it track. It has to be the WHAM version of it. You're not sent to WHAM which is where you go after you've been WHAMageddon. <laughs> <laughs> I survived WHAMageddon, so I might have to pull out that. In sync Christmas album uh, so that I have Christmas music to listen to. You
1: might should. There's some great, great, fabulous albums of Christmas oh, yeah. that I am totally into right now. They're great. Yeah. It's but do fun. you know my favorite? What's your favorite? <laughs> Everybody hates me for this. <laughs> so I'm really taking my time here. Okay. Um So Paul McCartney. Okay. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. I'm so glad you
0: like that song because I don't like it at all.
1: It's my favorite and I never hear it enough. Never hear it enough. It's It's so great. It's just so repetitive. Well, but it's different. It's the chord structures are different. It's (gasps) not four chords. And bells. I mean, it's got, like, different parts and different things in it. So even though it sort of repeats, it doesn't, re- it doesn't repeat the same old, same old. You know, it's, it's uh, different. Okay. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, I could get all technical, but it's just the parts are not your typical song. Okay, so you can appreciate it as a musician in I a way so. that
0: I cannot appreciate it as a lay person.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I know that's technically why it's different. <laughs> but I you like just it. like it. But I just think it's fun. Like, there's these little little parts that are surprising. Ooh. Oh. Ah. Well, good. You know? The kids. It's just great. Okay. The whole thing. Okay.
0: Good deal. Yeah. Don't, hate, I, me. don't no, hate me. no, not hate No, I... I let people like stuff. It's all, <laughs> it's all good. You can like it. I don't have to. It's all, it's fine. As long as we agree on I. O. J. Simpson, then, then we're okay. We're, then we're good.
1: All right, done. All right. Done.
0: All right. So next time we're gonna take a little bit of a break because it's the holidays and you're about to do some traveling for school and. Very exciting stuff, and we're so excited for you! Thank you, yay! But that means we need a little bit of a break, so we're going to bring you our episode on Dexter. Gonna because be great. What else says the holiday is like rewatching Dexter?
1: I mean, I've already finished the series again, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, awesome. All
0: right, so happy holidays, Merry Christmas, be safe, have fun. And we'll be back at you in the new year. All right. See you in 2020.
1: Forge audio. Dream it. Build it. Share it.